Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, everybody out there. I'm Jill Brooke, and I am very excited today to introduce a very special person in the POTS community. We're going to be talking to Dr. Kathy Peterson, who founded Standing Up to POTS. She is not only a professor of biology, but she is one of those fancy professors who has an endowed chair. She is the Elizabeth E. Powelson Endowed Chair in Biology. She, along with her family, her daughters, founded Standing Up to Pots a few years ago based on their own experience with pots and her determination not just to help herself and her daughter, but to help the entire community. So since then, she has built this beautiful organization that has now given away over a quarter of a million dollars in research funds. Um, She has built a beautiful website, a beautiful advisory committee of medical experts, and today she's going to be sharing with us the basics. What is POTS? You are a very special person because you decided to not only work on POTS for yourself, but for everybody. But let's start with the basics today. So POTS, what does that even stand for? Well, before I I answer that question, let me say thank you for that very nice introduction. And Jill and I go way back and and really started standing up to POTS sort of together. So so I appreciate you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. POTS stands for Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome. And this is a relatively common disorder. And we like to say the most common disorder that nobody's ever heard of. It affects one to three million people in the United States and about 17 million people worldwide. And again, not very many people have have heard of this at all. And with COVID, it sounds like the emerging findings is that that number might be going up. Unfortunately, I think that's true. So people have heard of long haul syndrome, which they're talking about in the news. And one of the disorders that seems to be a part of long haul syndrome is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. The other one seems to be chronic fatigue syndrome, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis. In some ways, that's been a silver lining for the POTS community. There's a lot of focus on POTS right now. Dr. Fauci and other leading physicians are talking about POTS and and chronic fatigue syndrome publicly. NIH has started funding this research, which they have not done ever. And so while we hate for a single other person to be affected by this disorder, in some ways the pandemic has been a small blessing to our community. Right. Right. So we hope that as much progress as we have been making, it's only going to speed up now. Okay, so tell us more about the basics of POTS. POTS is a disorder that affects the part of the nervous system that's called the autonomic nervous system. And you can think of autonomic like automatic. So it's the automatic parts of of our nervous system that we never think about until they go haywire. 
So you think about heart rate, and that's one of the cardinal signs of POTS. And most people, when they're at rest, their heart rate is 60 to 100 beats per minute. In POTS at rest, it can be way above 100, and certainly when they stand up, that, that heart rate skyrockets. For anybody who is new, I wonder if it would be helpful to just kind of define what postural orthostatic and tachycardia mean. Because I think when we talk about all this racing heart rate, I think that POTS altogether is like 28 syllables if you say the whole name, and it seems kind of unnecessarily complex. But really, what does it just mean? Postural is talking about a change in position. So think about going from laying to sitting or from sitting to standing. Orthostatic literally means straight, and so standing straight up. And, and some people actually say we don't need postural and orthostatic, so sometimes people will call it postural tachycardia syndrome. Tachycardia is abnormally high heart rate. And so again, for an adult, normal is between 60 and 100, and tachycardia is technically a heart rate of over 100 beats per minute when at rest. And so we see this really elevated heart rate in people that have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. And then the syndrome, I believe that just means cluster of symptoms. And so I feel like that's where 98% of the pain and suffering is in POTS. I feel like sometimes POTS is named for its least bothersome symptom. I think that's exactly right. You know, so it's, it's not a set disorder or disease. It's a cluster of symptoms, and there are a lot of different kinds of possible triggers and underlying causes that makes it really complicated for physicians to recognize and, and to diagnose. POTS is also a form of dysautonomia, so sometimes people have heard that term. And going along with the definitions, dys means abnormal. And that autonomia is again talking about that autonomic nervous system, which is controlling not only heart rate, but also blood pressure. There can be digestive issues with that. And so sometimes what you'll see is sometimes uh, people have a paralysis of their stomach. We call that gastroparesis. And that gastroparesis can give a lot of abdominal pain, particularly after eating. Other people have the opposite problem. Again, this is one of the problems with POTS, in that the food moves through their stomach and intestines so quickly, too quickly. We call that rapid gastric emptying. Other people have nausea and vomiting as a result of that. But more than that, blood vessel dilation. And so I know that you actually really struggle with a lot of symptoms that are related to that blood vessel dilation. So I'd love to bounce it back to you and, and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's what gets me the most. That's why I'm laying down right now instead of sitting up straight. Yeah, my blood vessels, like many POTS patients, do not vasoconstrict very well. So the blood is kind of at the mercy of gravity. And that can be why when you're in an upright position, the head doesn't get enough blood and it's thought to be related to some of the headaches, the dizziness, the fainting, the brain fog that some patients have. And in my case, I get a lot of leg pain from all that blood pooling in the lower part of my body. But I know that that's just one of several kinds of pain associated with POTS. Why are there so many kinds of pain, and what are the kinds of pain that can be associated with POTS? 
Boy, that's a great question. You know, my daughter has different kinds of symptoms from you, and that's one of the problems that's really, really difficult when we deal with POTS and when healthcare practitioners try to diagnose it. She has a lot of muscle pain, and it's in her legs, so it's really from her hips down to her ankles, and it's been there for years. So my daughter is about eight years into her POTS journey at this point, and chronic pain is one of her really big syndromes. She has neuropathic pain, which means that it's not coming from an injury or something like that, but that the pain centers for some reason have gotten started, and now she's got like a pain superhighway going through her her central nervous system. And once you get that going, it's really, really difficult to turn it off. She used to also have a lot of abdominal pain and would curl up in a ball on the floor after eating. We'd run and get ice packs and put on her and that did help. But there are so many kinds of pain, unfortunately, that are associated with this. And I ought to say another symptom for my daughter that's really bad, and I think the opposite of you, Jill, is fatigue. She has overwhelming, unbelievably crushing fatigue, and moving for her is really, really difficult, and being upright is really, really difficult. But I want to flip it over to you, Jill, because I think you're really the opposite in some ways. Yeah, I have the hyperadrenergic POTS type where you get that elevated activation of the sympathetic nervous system, my adrenaline has been measured at a very high rate and so I oftentimes feel like a tiger in a cage (laughs) and I've been told by experts that one thing that can happen is that when your brain is not getting enough circulation it puts out adrenaline because that's the normal signal that would tell your blood vessels to constrict and help you get more circulation but that in POTS that vasoconstriction may not happen so the brain just keeps putting out more adrenaline and more and to no effect and so that can result in too much energy in some ways or kind of a a wired and tired feeling is another common one that you hear about. So it it is interesting how POTS has these kind of opposites. Like when it comes to temperatures, some people are too hot, some people are too cold. I moved to Alaska because I couldn't stand heat at all. Other people moved to San Diego because they can't stand it to be cold. It, It really is interesting how so many parts of POTS can go one way or the other way unpredictably. Absolutely. And it does, again, make it very difficult for the healthcare practitioners to pick it up when it can look so different from POTS patient to POTS patient. And one thing that's notable, I think that some of us, especially in the earlier days, I kind of consider myself an old lady of POTS, is that having so many symptoms is common in POTS. When you look at the research and you look at the surveys of how many patients have how many symptoms, there are dozens of symptoms that over 80% of patients would say that they have. And so I think that's another thing that's overwhelming for doctors who are set up for a system that's better at serving one symptom at a time. So, so what can you tell us about how debilitating can this disorder be? You have done lots of studies, your own original research on quality of life in POTS patients. What do you find? Well, you know, it's a sliding scale. And so some people with POTS are really quite good once they get diagnosed. 
they find a protocol that really works for them and they can get back to, to normal or very nearly normal life. And we've got a board member who's like that. Once she got diagnosed and on the right medicines for her and a really strict exercise routine, she says most of the time you would never know that she was ill. And then my daughter's on the other end of that. She's medically disabled. She has been on a 504 plan at school since she was 10 or 11. And, you know, I, I bought her a wheelchair when she was 11 years old. And this was a kid that had unbelievable amounts of, of energy prior to, uh, to getting sick. So it is, it's really interesting to see. And then there are lots of people that are sort of in the middle. I wouldn't say my daughter's the worst off. There are some people who are literally bedridden from their symptoms of, of POTS. Uh, but there are lots of folks sort of on that sliding scale in the middle where they may be okay for a day or two and then they push too far and then they end up in bed for a couple of days as well. I think one really interesting related thing is that POTS has been associated with higher rates of several comorbidities, things including autoimmunity of different types, genetic connective tissue disorders, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or joint hypermobility syndrome, mast cell activation syndrome, and each of these things can also come with its own hot mess of symptoms and problems. And sometimes it's hard to pick apart what's coming from the POTS versus what's coming from the comorbidities some poor people in our community are really slammed by a lot of comorbidities at once. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting because some people, my daughter, for example, has about five different diagnoses. They're all syndromes, like you were pointing out, so they're clusters of these symptoms. And it's interesting to see which one people choose as sort of the one that they tell people that they have. So for my daughter, that's been POTS, but she does have mast cell activation, she does have Ehlers-Danlos, she does have chronic fatigue, she, you know, uh, the list goes on longer than I wish it did. So yeah, it does make it really difficult to really get to the root of the problem and figure out when you've got all these syndromes that have some overlapping symptoms and some that are unique maybe to that particular one. And that kind of gets us to what are some of the triggers of POTS? You know, it's really interesting and also frustrating. So one of the main triggers is infection. So for my daughter, we think that she got mononucleosis or mono when she was 10. It's really uncommon to have it that young, but that looks like it was the trigger. Lyme disease can be a trigger. COVID now appears to be a trigger of POTS. There are, there are a number of these viral and other illnesses that can cause it. That seems to be about 40% of cases. And it could it also be a bacterial infection? It seems like it. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything that says that it's only viruses, although some of them that we have seen the most in the literature tend to be viruses. I don't know that, that there's any real reason. I think it's overactivation of the immune system coming as a result of that infection. Yeah, so that's about 40% of, of people. But the weird thing is, what if I caught mono? Most people who get mono don't stay sick for the rest of their lives. So you could look at it the other way. It's a very small percentage of people that get Lyme disease or get COVID or get 
mono that actually end up with this long-term illness afterwards. So when you look at from, from the pot side, it sounds really high, right, 40%, but if you look at all the people that get ill from that disease or disorder, it's, it's not very high. Another one, again, sort of strangely, is surgery. So you think about the millions of people that have surgery every year. When you survey POTS patients, about 12% think that the trigger of their POTS was actually some sort of surgery that they had. Pregnancy is another one, about 10%, 9% were fine before pregnancy and then develop POTS afterwards. Now I ought to throw in a caveat there. I also know in our POTS community that some folks have POTS, get pregnant, and, and feel better during their pregnancy. So it's, it's really confusing, right, to think about these. And then the last one that I just want to throw out there is, is trauma and concussion. And when you put those two together, that's about 7% of POTS patients think that a, a concussion or some sort of trauma was the trigger for their POTS. So it's a really confusing picture. There's not one single thing that's leading to, to the POTS syndrome. And when I was new to all of this, it took me a while to figure out that trigger versus underlying cause can be different. So for example, some people may have an autoimmune underlying cause, but it is trauma that triggers it. That's exactly right. And so it gets a little bit complex, and that's why seeing a great doctor can really help and kind of try to untangle some of these things. So Kathy, if someone suspects that they have POTS, what kind of doctor should they see and how would they go about getting a POTS diagnosis? That's a great question. I think the best physicians for diagnosing and treating POTS are neurologists and cardiologists. But more than that, you really want a neurologist or a cardiologist that specializes in the autonomic nervous system. And so when you're reading through their profile, it might say that they're an autonomic cardiologist or an autonomic neurologist. And again, their focus is that automatic part of your nervous system, that autonomic nervous system. And often what they'll do to diagnose then is one of two things. So when, when you run all sorts of tests, they come back normal. It's frustrating for everyone. So, you know, blood tests are often normal, urine tests, they may do some sort of imaging. For most people with POTS, that all comes back normal. The one that you really need for diagnosis, the fancy one is called a tilt table test. And you make an appointment to go in and they have a specialized table that they have you lay on for about 20 minutes, they get baseline readings. And then they have a couple of straps that go across you because what they really want is for that person to be very relaxed, to not be tensing the muscles in their legs as they stand them up to about 70 degrees. So they're not standing completely upright, but only about 70 degrees. And they're looking for changes in heart rate. They can do some other testing along with that as well. But that tilt table test is really the gold standard in diagnosing POTS. And what you would want to see is an increase in heart rate without a change in blood pressure. So in an adult, you would want to see an increase in heart rate by about 30 beats per minute. 
Well, you technically wouldn't want to, but that's what would qualify you, right? Okay. That's right. For the diagnosis, you would want to see 30 beats per minute in an adult, 40 beats per minute in a child or a teenager. And so that, that's something that you can do, but there's a quicker and easier way to see whether POTS might just be in the picture. And it's called a standing test. Other people call it a poor man's tilt table test. And essentially you do the same thing where you lay in the doctor's office, or really you can do this at home, lay on the couch or on the bed or the floor for, again, for five or 10 minutes, let yourself sort of relax and take your pulse at the end of that and then stand up and after two minutes take that pulse again and again if it's jumped by 30 beats per minute for an adult or 40 for a child then POTS might be in the picture. Now if you're in the doctor's office they'll take a blood pressure with that as well and again they want to be sure that there's not a significant change in that blood pressure. But either that the fancy tilt table test or the, the easier, cheaper standing test is really the way to get diagnosed with POTS. And then I think that, is it correct that you also have to have had orthostatic symptoms for at least six months that are not explained by other things? And my understanding is that some drugs could make you have some of these symptoms just temporarily, some illnesses. And I think people who go to the moon or the space station, when they come back, don't they technically have POTS for a little while till their autonomic system gets used to gravity again? They do. Yeah, that's a little known fact from our friend Jill Brooke. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and a lot of people, as they're going to physician and maybe physician after physician, do have those orthostatic symptoms. And a great illustration is I use the, the standing test in my labs to teach my students how to take a pulse and just practice taking the pulse on someone else. Almost every lab I have someone that sees an increase of 30 beats per minute. And so you're right, if there are no symptoms, they're not lightheaded, they're not dizzy, they're not having GI problems, they're not having blood pooling, it's a non-finding. Okay, so what does somebody do about it if they determine that they have POTS? Well, this is where it really gets tricky, as you know from your own life experience, and certainly we've lived that in my home as well. So a lot of times the physicians will put you on lifestyle changes to see if it helps. And there are a number of things that you can do even while you're waiting for a diagnosis that might help alleviate some of these symptoms. One idea is that low blood volume, the technical term is hypovolemia, right, can exacerbate or, or make pot symptoms worse. And so things that can increase blood volume can be helpful at relieving symptoms. And some of these sound odd. So the first one is to take salt tablets. And the recommendation for a lot of people with POTS is up to 10 grams of salt capsules per day. Now most Americans, and Jill can go on a long thing about this, I'm sure, because she's a nutritionist, we want you to be at 1.5 or 2 grams per day for most people. But there's a salt retention issue in people with POTS, and so we were, we're really loading that in as a way to try to hold fluids 
in their body. So coupled with that increase of salt intake, we also want to see about three liters of fluid per day. It could be water, it could be milk, it could be an electrolyte drink. Another one that can help, maybe a little less directly, is raising the head of your bed. So we've done that off and on for years for my daughter. Never really noticed a difference, but they say put bricks or lumber or something under the head of the bed and raise it four to six inches. And the idea is that it makes the kidneys work a little harder to keep blood going up to the brain and might help to increase that blood volume. You want to jump in there, Jill? Sure. You know what's interesting about raising the head of the bed in my experience was I tried that early on and it did nothing for me except make my legs hurt because they would make all my blood pool in my legs while I'd sleep at night. But, you know, so that was about 15 years ago. Then I did a bunch of other things, found a whole bunch of little solutions that each helped a bit, tried it again just a few years ago, and it helped me so much. And I thought, why is it helping me now when it didn't before? I do not know, but it just proves that sometimes this is an evolving, changing thing, and sometimes it doesn't hurt to try some of the old solutions again. The thing I was just maybe mentioned to people about the salt and the fluids, because it's true that as a, as a nutritionist, I see this a lot in POTS patients, you never want to drastically increase your fluids without also increasing your salt. So the idea would be to make any changes gradually, but there is something called hyponatremia that can happen when you drink tons of water without enough salt and it can be dangerous. It can make too much fluid go to your brain. And about once a month, I talk to a POTS patient who feels worse the more that they drink and their headaches get worse, their symptoms get worse the more they drink. And sometimes they'll say, well, salt isn't healthy, so I'm only doing the fluid part of that. And that can actually be dangerous. So, so salt and fluids go together. That is a great tip, wow. Well, I can't tell you how often I I hear that one. You know, one other lifestyle change that just absolutely was so huge for me was finding the right compression stockings. And I know everybody hears this and everybody kind of has their favorite. But what I found was I had to kiss a lot of frogs before I found my prints in the form of compression stockings because the whole idea is the graduated compression. You want them tightest at the bottom and gradually getting less tight as they move upward. So if your body shape isn't quite right for that particular brand, then maybe it's a little too tight high up, in which case you're not helping the blood go upwards. And so for me, I wasted a lot of money on brands that didn't work. It actually turned out to be a men's compression stocking. I guess I have men shaped legs that worked for me, but oh man, when you find the right ones, it made all the difference. You know, that's an excellent point too, because I think there's so much trial and error It's so different from one person to another for lots of things, but especially in POTS. And and to keep trying is what I hear you saying. Yeah, and I also learned over time, at, at first I expected there to be one solution that took me all the way back. And over time I realized that it was gonna be a string of little solutions. And if I can find something that helps 5% now, that's great. I'll take even 2%. 
And sometimes that 5% boost is the thing that gives me the energy to try the next thing that gives me the next 5%. And it's very much a bootstrapping process in my experience. But one other thing I would just remind people about compression stockings is that most of the blood pooling that happens is believed to happen in your abdomen. And so waist high compression stockings in theory would help a lot more than just knee high or thigh high. And I guess everybody needs to try for themselves, but but I know I combine thigh high compression stockings with a separate compression short, like an Under Armour compression short, because it allows me to mix and match and it's just one more thing where you don't have to find exactly the right waist size to fit with exactly the right thigh size and exactly the right calf size and ankle size. And it just makes things a little bit easier to get the perfect fit. Well, and there are abdominal binders as well. So my daughter was, was prescribed an abdominal binder, but I don't think it fit her correctly. They can't size them the way that they do the compression stockings. And she was very uncomfortable. For some folks, that might be a great way to go, is the abdominal binder. Funny story that I think that an incorrectly sized abdominal binder is a nightmare. And the reason I know this is because driving to the fitting of my wedding dress, I decided that I was going to wear Spanx for the first time to be, you know, a nice svelte bride. And I remember having to pull the car over in an emergency because I thought I was gonna pass out and die because it was too tight. And I think it was letting even less blood up to my head. So yes, I was the person who pulled over on the sidewalk, pulled off the Spanx and said, oh my gosh, never doing that again. Oh my, I think Patsy's have a million stories like this, right? The other thing I'd say as far as lifestyle is for f fatigue, and I know a lot of people do have issues with fatigue that also have POTS. And for some people, exercise is a way out of that fatigue and can really decrease their symptoms overall. Always, you want to start very slowly, very slowly. But you really want to aim for recumbent exercise. So maybe a recumbent bicycle, if you don't have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and so you're not worried about extra flexibility in the joints, a rowing machine can be great. And if you have access, a swimming pool is really the best. My daughter feels great in the pool, but if she does too much activity in the pool, as soon as she gets out, man, she feels terrible. Well, that reintroduction to gravity, I think when you're in a pool, you're getting full body compression, and then you get out, I know that I have to lay down for a few minutes after I get out of a pool, put my feet up. But that can be great, and I know several people for whom exercise was really the, the answer, and it might be literally starting with five minutes of slow exercise a day. That's okay. And then maybe next week you add another minute, and so you do six minutes a day. And then maybe two weeks after that, you add another minute, and now you're up to seven minutes a day. You need to go really slow. Pacing yourself is so important in POTS, not only with exercise, but really with everything. You know, so my daughter in particular definitely has chronic fatigue issues, chronic fatigue syndrome. We haven't had her formally diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was there. And in that community, they talk about an energy envelope. And as long as you stay within that 
amount of energy that you're allotted for that day, you're okay. But as soon as you push the envelope a little too far, then you get rebound fatigue. And my daughter can literally end up in the recliner for a week after pushing it too hard to try to go to a party or or do something that she really wanted to do, right? Things that you and I wouldn't think about very much. So pacing yourself, I think, is really important. And then the last one I would say, and, and maybe I ought to just throw this right back to Jill, is really for abdominal pain. And so my daughter did used to have a lot of abdominal pain. We did the elimination diet a couple of times. The other one is to eat smaller meals. It might help right, four to six meals a day. But Jill, I, think, I feel like you're the expert who could probably address the elimination diet a little bit better. Sure, right. Well, the elimination diet is a tool we use to figure out what a person's individual sensitivities are. So it usually involves cutting back to those few safe foods that you know don't give you issues and then very scientifically and methodically adding back one food at a time and seeing how it treats you. It's very laborious, it's a huge pain in the butt, but it is the gold standard. It's actually better than any lab test you can do for figuring out which foods give you problems or not. Um, and especially when we get into some of the comorbidities like mast cell activation syndrome, or gastroparesis, they're finding that dysautonomia patients appear to have a higher rate of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's so many digestive things that can tie in autoimmunity, and once you get into that, sometimes people have new food groups that give them issues. So the elimination diet is a way of identifying what those are, hopefully kind of once and for all, so that then you can get on to having the most uh, varied diet possible. Because at the end of the day, we, we don't want to just be eating the same few things over and over again, which a, a lot of POTS patients are, because it, if it's painful to eat, it's sometimes it's not fun to eat. They uh, lose the joy in food. And maybe we'll have some podcasts just about some of these issues. But an elimination diet is something that you don't want to just do casually. If you're not surgical and quick about it and it lags on and you're sloppy, now you're just on a very restricted, unhealthy diet. And we don't want that. We want it to be done for the shortest amount of time possible so that you can get back to a really wide, varied diet. There's also some interesting research that's just happening now about how gluten may be affecting POTS, and um, I hope to get some experts in here to talk about that. And the more that they learn that a lot of POTS patients might have autoimmunity as a basis, then there's a whole big world of nutrition strategies to try. So it gets kind of exciting but unfortunately, yeah, a lot of patients who have POTS do get abdominal pain. And one other strategy that also works for some is to, to either lay down after eating or to prop up their feet so that they have more of their blood go to their digestive tract. Because we know that in POTS, if you have low blood volume and you have blood pooling, then your digestive tract might not be getting quite as much circulation as it likes. Absolutely. And I'll say we've done an elimination diet twice. 
and we did it with surgical precision. Didn't help her, helped me, actually. <laughs> yeah, really funny, but it, it, it's a lot of work to do those, but it really can make a difference for some folks to figure out if they've got a food sensitivity that may be contributing to that abdominal pain. And for some, it's amazing to me how for some people it makes absolutely no difference. And for other people, they identify one food or one food group. And I just talked to a girl a couple days ago who she identified one problem food in her diet and estimated that she was 75% better. And it's just amazing. Okay, so when it comes to the medical treatments or the drugs that get used for POTS, what kinds of things are on the table? So this is tricky. Uh, right now, there are no medications that are FDA approved for POTS specifically. So everything that's given to a POTS patient as far as prescription medication is what we call off-label, meaning that it's been approved by the FDA for other disorders, but not for POTS in particular. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD, I'm not an MD, so I don't want to say too much about individual drugs, but I will say that there are general classes. So for some people, when they stand up, their blood pressure can really drop, and so there are some medications that will increase that blood pressure and try to keep that within normal levels. Lots of people with POTS have that tachycardia, sort of by definition, but some of them have heart palpitations where they can feel their heart beating in their chest, are very uncomfortable. So there are other medications that they can take to decrease heart rate. A third sort of category that the physician might try to address is to increase really the movement of the blood back to the, to the abdomen and to the brain by peripheral, it's called vasoconstriction. So making the, the diameter of those blood vessels smaller so that we push the blood back up toward the heart and toward the brain. And then the last one is to decrease sympathetic tone. So the autonomic nervous system has two parts. The sympathetic part is the fight or flight system. And Jill mentioned that she has a kind of POTS that really activates that sympathetic nervous system. My daughter does as well, but not, not in the same ways, I feel like, or maybe not to the same degree that Jill sees. But she does take a medication to decrease the sympathetic nervous system, or it's called sympathetic tone. Any other messages? you'd like to get out there? You know, I just hope that people that are listening can feel our passion and feel our, our joy at bringing this information to you and, and not to give up. Don't give up hope. I, I will say my daughter got sick at age 10. She's 19 now. She's in college and by all accounts thriving. She still has that energy envelope but things are much better than when she was 10 and 12 and 15. So please hang in there, keep listening, and hopefully we will present things that can help you in the future. Well, I think that's beautifully said. We look forward to covering many more topics and thanks for joining us. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org slash podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.